resources, with the money and the finances that he has entrusted to us. Now, to kind of get the ball rolling, I want you to imagine with me for a second, uh, just kind of just imagine with me for a second, if you and I were living in the South uh, during the Civil War. Right, we're living in the in the South. Imagine what that might be like. It, it, about this time, I'm at, what, what'd you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. But just imagine what that would be like. Imagine maybe we're we're about a year before the end of the war. Imagine if if you were in a spot and you knew. I mean, it was obvious. You knew that the war was going to be coming to an end. You knew that the South was going to fall. And imagine with me for a second if everything you owned, go to the next slide, everything you owned, your entire life possessions were in Confederate dollars. I mean, that's, that's all you owned, right? That, that, that's everything that you had. You gotten paid. You accrued. Everything was in Confederate currency. And imagine that you know sometime over the course of the next year, the, the South is going to fall. The Confederate, the Confederate dollars will be no more. They will no longer have any value whatsoever except maybe for uh, fire starters or something like that, right? You'll no, they'll no longer be able to buy and sell goods with those dollars. They will be worthless. If that were the case and you knew that you knew that you knew that that was going to happen, how would you live your life? Here's, yeah, here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to turn to a person or two or three around you and talk about your answers. How would, how would that change your perspective? How would you live differently if you knew a currency conversion was coming sometime in the next year? Go ahead and talk. It's okay to talk in church. All right, let's bring it back together. Share some of your answers. How, what, are, what are some of the answers? I heard somebody say, I'm just going to blow it, right? I mean, kind of like, what else? What, what are some other answers? Exchange it. Convert it. What's that? Convert it into U.S. dollars. That would be smart, wouldn't it? Why would that be smart? Absolutely. You'd convert it, convert it over. Absolutely. Good. What else? Buy gold. Sure. You could buy something else. You could invest it in something that would have lasting value that you knew would last after the currency conversion took place. What else? What's that? Buy seeds. Absolutely. Yeah. Stuff. Buy something that has value that you can do something with after. Absolutely. Right. There's all kinds of things. My, my hunch is that suddenly, I mean, the power of the almighty buck might lose some of its power if you knew it wasn't going to, if you knew it wasn't going to mean anything. Right. I mean, I think would we, would we just blow some and enjoy it? Sure. Would you become increasingly generous? Why not? Right. You're like, this thing's going to, I mean, if it has value now, let's use it. Like let's, let's help people. Let's you know, you'd, you'd probably feel free to give it away or to you take a smart person would probably take as much as they could and they'd invest it in, in, in only keep enough to live on day to day goods. Right. You'd probably as soon as you got money. I lived in Russia during a time when their currency was falling apart. There was, uh, I mean, hundreds of percent uh, of inflation every year in, in Russia. In fact, at one point while I was living there, uh, 
This is after the fall of the Berlin Wall. At one point, the, the government just said, let's just drop a zero on all of our currency. So if you have a, a $1,000, you know, if you had a $10,000 note, it's now going to count as just a $1,000 note. Like, you, like let's, just, let's just kind of take a zero off, and we'll just use that because we don't want to keep printing more and more money, bigger and bigger and bigger. So we'll just... Well, you can't do that. Like it just—it's it's losing its value. So people in Russia, when they get paid, immediately they would exchange it into U.S. currency at the time. Now, it might be something else now. I don't know, but I'm just, like they would just—they want hard currency. It was worth everything because they're like, this stuff won't last. And man, I just—I think about that. The reason I'm—I'm I'm bringing that up today is I think in a very real way. I think what the Bible teaches about our money is that a currency conversion is coming. The stuff that we spend so much of our lives going after and wanting more of and doing it to, to, to buy things and to, you know, all this kind of, there's a, it will not last. There's a currency conversion coming. And the person that is wise will use the dollars and the, the cents that God has given to us in the here and now, and we will convert it into a kind of currency that will last we looked at this a couple weeks ago, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But Jesus puts it this way. Listen to this. See if it doesn't sound like a currency conversion is coming. He says this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Convert it into something that will last, he's saying. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you tell me, what does the Bible say about this kind of thing? Does God want you to have treasure? This is my first question. Does God want you to have treasure? According to this passage. He does, right? This, that's, that's sort of may, might be shocking to you. But does, does God want you to have a currency that's going to last? The answer is yes. He's very concerned about that. But he's saying don't be so foolish as to spend all your time and attention on the currency in the here and now. Because there will come a day sometime soon when this stuff, this currency, all, all that we have spent our lives trying to accumulate and gather and the money in our bank account, uh, it will be worthless. So he said, why not convert that stuff into stuff that's going to last? You want to know it's going to last? His kingdom, his mission, people. <laughs> why not use what God has entrusted to you, your time, your talent, your treasure? Every, why not use the capital of your life in a way that will help the kingdom of God move forward? That will help more and more and more and more people end up in eternity with Jesus, right? To, to live with him forever. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Man, there's been, uh, I think, a lot of people throughout human, a lot of Christ followers throughout human history have understood this way better than I think we do in the 21st century in the West. Listen to a few of these quotes. This is great. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, a guy that uh, God used to turn the world uh, upside down, maybe right side up, however, <laughs> for, for God's kingdom in that day. He says this, I judge all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. Jaw-dropping statement. He says, judge everything by the price or the, the gain that, that shall be had in eternity because conversion day is coming. This next one, David Livingston said this, I will place no value on anything I have or possess except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. If I have anything or if anything I have will advance the kingdom, it shall be given or kept, uh, whichever is best to promote the glory of him to, to whom I owe all my hopes. 
both for time, both, both for now and for eternity. Again, a missionary and a doctor in the 1800s. God used these kind of men with this kind of picture and that kind of surrendered heart that said, I want to, I want to live my life full on for eternity. I want to store up treasure in heaven, right? I want, I want to sow into stuff that's going to last. He used these guys to transform the world, to bring the gospel and transform hundreds of thousands, probably millions of lives for Jesus. Now, we don't talk about money um, all the time as a church. Uh, we're, we're not here, you know, going, talking about this today because we're after your money. God is not after your money as though he needs it, right? I mean, as though, like, God's some pauper that's like, would you please give me a nickel? Or, I mean, like, I mean, it's, he's God, right? If he wanted something, could he snap his fingers and have it? Could he speak? And it would be, of course, he's God. He doesn't need it. The reason, uh, I mean, and yet it's such a big deal. Let me just, I'm getting ahead of myself here. And yet Jesus spends so much time in the Gospels, in the, in the biographies about him. In fact, one out of every six paragraphs in the Gospels talks about money, including one out of every three parables that Jesus tells talks about money and treasure. And I'm like, if God doesn't need the money, why does he spend so much time talking about it? Because we need him. Because right, the, the, the passage we read, I read earlier says, where our treasure is there, our heart will be also. Do you think our hearts matter to God? Do you think uh, our, our, I mean, even, uh, I just think it's such a big deal because our hearts tend to, to follow the way we spend our money because our hearts and our souls matter to God because the way we use our money reflects what really is our God. It reflects really what we're living for. I remember uh, hearing, uh, I'll give you a couple of quotes, uh, hearing a couple of times, one saying that your, your wallet or your checkbook is the most theological document you own. It shares what you really believe. And it's true. What's important to us always shows up in our checkbook or our credit card statement or our bank statement or whatever. It shows up. I remember hearing one time an offering prayer, convicting as heck, which is why I can't forget it, uh, that, said, that said, no matter what I say or do, God, this, my offering, what I'm giving back to you, this is what I think of you. Gulp. Where our treasure is, there our heart tends to follow. And God cares so much about you. He cares so much about your heart. And he cares so much about the hearts and the lives of every person around you. There's nobody that you've ever locked eyes with that God isn't crazy about. He cares about that so much. He says, man, be careful with how you invest your, your treasure because conversion day is coming. Invest your lives in stuff that will last. All right, in the rest of the time that we have, I want to uh, dig into 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. It's a passage that talks about money. I don't think I've ever preached on this before, but I have to say, it was like jaw-dropping as I'm studying this week, and actually as I've been studying in preparation uh, for this entire series, and I'm like, I just feel like we need to go there. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to 2 Corinthians 8 chapter 1, or verse 1, and, uh, and we're going to read through a section there, and then we're going to jump to chapter 9 in a minute. Um, but, yeah, I just think God has great, I mean, he's talking about gener the generosity of the church. 
And, uh, and I think he does a great job of both breaking down some misconceptions about giving and generosity, about investing ourselves and sowing for eternity and investing in treasures in heaven. He, he breaks down some barriers. He also gives some promises and some encouragement to those who will step out and, and live that way. And so we're going to learn some lessons from it. We'll do some application at the end. 2 Corinthians 8, starting with verse 1, says this. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I love that. I'm going to stop for just one second. Overflowing joy and riches what God's saying here, to some degree, do not go together. Right? The overflowing joy in Jesus is separate from whether you have or do not have. Their overflowing joy in the midst of extreme poverty welled up in great generosity. Amazing kind of stuff. Uh, that joy drives us to be generous, that joy of Jesus. Verse 3 says this, For I testify that they, the Macedonian churches, gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. By the way, is that how you typically think about giving? That you're urgently begging and urging people to give me an opportunity because I want to be generous to you. I think that's a, uh, this is all so foreign to me. This is crazy uh, talk here. Verse 5, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first First of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us, to the church. And so they urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a, a beginning, to bring uh, also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Again, amazing language. Would you say that you excel in the grace of giving, uh, challenging words. Verse 8, it says, I'm not commanding you, uh, but I want, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. All right, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> I just, again, uh, I just think this is an amazing passage. I'm going to try and summarize it in a sentence and, and stick with me. If, if, if a little flag goes up in your head uh, while I, when I say this, this uh, that's okay. Stick with me until the end. It'll make sense. But here's, here's the sermon in a sentence. Generosity does not come from abundance, but it leads to abundance. Okay. So, so what I'm saying is, generosity, I'll just say it again, generosity does not come from abundance, meaning that we, it comes from people that are rich or people that have a whole bunch. No, that, that's not, generosity does not necessarily come from abundance, but it leads us to true abundance and especially eternal abundance. It's sort of a picture of storing up treasure in heaven. Let me just kind of walk through this passage a little bit at a time. First of all, just context here. Paul starts out the section telling a true story about the Macedonian churches. During one of his missionary journeys, Paul's going around and sharing with these churches about how the church in Jerusalem was suffering. They were going through a lot of hardship in this day. These believers were under tremendous persecution. They were living in severe poverty. The church in Jerusalem was in need. And so Paul, as he's going around ministering, began to share with other believers. 
about the needs of the church. And they gave, even in the midst of their poverty, they gave sacrificially to the ministry and the mission of Jesus in Jerusalem to help meet the needs of God's people, but also to help move the church forward as they care for the needs of other people living in the city. And verse 2, again, this just blows my mind. In the midst, it says, of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I mean, we tend to think that giving and generosity is for those that have a lot of resources. If I had more, I'd give more. I mean, so many of us think that. I, I think that way sometimes. I think all of us think that way sometimes. If I had more, I'd be more generous. Can I just say, statistically, nothing could be further from the truth. The more you make, the less proportionately you give. That's what the stats, the studies over the last 150 years have found it again and again and again and again and again. Statistically, the more you have, the less you give. It's not linked. It's not that rich people can be generous, but poor people cannot or regular people can. That's not the way it is. That's simply not true. You know, we think I can't afford to be generous because I don't make that much. I don't have that much. But like I said, statistically, it's not true. And I think I found this to be true in my own life, too. Oftentimes, it is those that, that know what it's like not to have much, that have the biggest hearts, that are the most generous, that, are, that, that give the most freely. And I'm not talking just to the church, just in general, to have that gracious and giving sort of perspective, those loving and generous kind of hearts. Generosity does not come from abundance, but leads to abundance. And the early church understood that. They lived this stuff out. Their overflowing joy in Jesus, plus their extreme poverty, e equated to uh, rich generosity. Because their eyes were fixed on Jesus. They were fixed not just on this world and on this currency and all that it can buy, but they were fixed on the next. And they understood the significance of the mission of Jesus, the kingdom of God. And knew that was the only thing that was going to last. And so they were converting as much as they could, saying, I want to invest in, in, in store up treasure in heaven. I want to sow seeds that will last forever and not just waste it in the here and now. I want to live my life to that end. And so they gave generously in crazy sort of ways. They wanted to use their resources in ways that, were, that mattered. I was thinking this week, um, I'll get myself in trouble here if I'm not careful, but I was thinking about the coronavirus that's going around and, and there's so much hype and so much fear and I am not in any way minimizing it. I'm not saying uh, that there's not legit stuff. I'm not making light of people that are sick or dying uh, from this kind of thing. But there's, you have to admit in the media, the media has it all stirred up right now, right? I mean, every, people are buying toilet paper and hiding in their basement. I mean, that kind of thing. Like, oh, we're gonna stay down here forever and that kind of stuff. And, and it just reminded me of, of a time in the early church in, uh, in the first three centuries, actually, in the life of uh, the church, there were two major plagues that literally wiped through the Roman Empire uh, and killed scores and scores and scores of people. So that in, in most of the bigger cities uh, in the Roman Empire, between a quarter and a third of the population in each of those cities died. Can you imagine? One out of three can you imagine? I mean, we live in, a, in an area where there's a couple hundred thousand people. Can you imagine? I mean, what that would be like, it'd be crazy. It'd be crazy. I mean, tens of thousands of people died. 
I mean, one ancient writer said that at, uh, it created such a panic in the, in the general population of the Roman Empire that at the first onset of the disease, people would kick even family members. They would kick them out of their houses. They would leave them in the roads to die because they were so terrified to be around the sickness. It was, they were just throwing people out. They were allowing bodies, this is going to be gross, but to decompose and just, they were treating it like dirt, saying maybe if we just leave it alone, nobody else will get sick. We'll just go leave them over there. Now here's, here's, here's what's crazy. Yeah, not that that's a good strategy. It doesn't really work that way, but that's okay. I mean, that's, but that's sort of how severe it was. People, at the first sign, they were kicking people out. You'd never see family members again, allowing them to die on the streets. Here's, here's the crazy thing. The Church of Jesus Christ, this is what they were known for, would go out onto the streets for people they had never met or known, not members of their family. They would pick them up. They would bring them into their own homes. They would care for them and nurse them. They would pray for them. They would provide for them. They would show rich generosity to people that they didn't even know. You see the contrast? While, while the, the crowd and the, the nation at the time was totally uh, frantic and hiding and kicking their loved ones out, the church was stepping in and caring for me. I don't know why. Because that's what they saw Jesus do, right? The one who cared for lepers and the sick. The one who came to seek and to save the lost. Right? The one who, though he was rich, became poor so that others could become rich in him. That's what the church does. That's what the church has always done. In fact, if you keep reading throughout history, you start learning uh, about all this kind of, the first hospital was introduced by a Christ follower by the name of Benedict in the fourth century. And by the sixth century, hospitals often went along with local churches. This idea of generosity and self-service and sacrifice and compassion for those who are suffering and in need, that's sort of always gone, gone hand in hand with those that follow Jesus, the one who came to seek and to save the lost. In fact, so much so that by the time the Geneva Convention, an organization that was committed to alleviating human suffering in the world, by the time it began, they, they chose as its symbol a cross. It became known as the Red Cross. The cross representing Jesus because followers of Jesus had this uncanny desire, this amazing generosity and way that they loved and lived that would go out and sacrifice sometimes their own lives, right? So, but certainly their comfort, they would, they would sacrifice uh, their money, they would, sacrifice, they would sacrifice everything so that the mission of Jesus and the kingdom of God would move forward so that the poor could find healing so that people that are lost and alone could be loved and meet Jesus. And the early church understood this. They said, yeah, of course, this is how followers of Jesus live. The early church got this, right? They followed as we do, the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty, we and they might become rich. This is how the kingdom of God moves forward. It's how the kingdom of God has always moved forward. Jesus sacrificed himself for the good of others. He didn't live for his own comfort. He didn't live for his own ease, but willingly chose to sacrifice, to suffer, even to die, so that others could live. And his followers, as his followers, you and I, 
are to follow his example. We too are to sacrifice of our time, our talent, our treasure for his mission, for his kingdom so that others of the 250,000 people around us can find new life in Christ. They can be ministered to. They can be welcomed in and find the hope and the life and the love and the salvation uh, that are available because of him. Let's keep going. Chapter 9, I'm going to jump forward with verse 6. And just listen to this. Still talking about, uh, again, the, the money and treasure in heaven and all that kind of stuff. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As, as it is written, uh, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing into many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies the confession of the gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everybody else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace that God has given to you. Thanks be to God for this, for his indescribable gift. All right, so let me just stop there. This whole picture is amazing, right? But he starts out saying, whoever sows sparingly reaps sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Again, he kind of starts out here talking about how we use our money, that kind of stuff, but he uses a farming metaphor, sowing and reaping, planting and harvesting. Now, uh, I know there's not a lot of farmers in the crowd, so let's just do a, little, a quick little synopsis here. If, if God has entrusted you with a huge field in, in your possessions and you go out this spring and you plant 10 seeds of corn in the ground in the middle of this huge field, and then you wait for the harvest. Oh, this is going to be good, right? I mean, and you wait for the harvest in the fall. What would you expect to find in the fall? Is the whole field going to be filled with corn? Is there going to be crops and, and, and stuff, stuff to last you the whole year long? You and the whole community, is that what, is that what you're going to find? No, what are you going to find? At most, right, at most, you'd probably find 10 stalks of corn with a couple of ears on each, maybe, right? A few little ears of corn. You probably get done, you could probably carry it along with you, what you'd have, right? That kind of thing. And he's sort of using this as a metaphor, as an image, saying, you know what? Use your resources. With the resources God has entrusted to you, you are sowing. You're sowing. Right? To, uh, some of us are sowing for the here and now, but he's saying sow in a way that's for eternity, that's going to last and make a difference. And don't just sow a little bit. Don't just, don't just take a seed of corn and say, boom, yeah. Right? I mean, he's like, no, the, he's like, so generously reach in the back, take the seed, fling it out. Right? Why, you're taking handfuls of, you want, this, you want the ground to be saturated with seeds so that when harvest day comes, and it's coming, Jesus, God's saying here, right? When, when harvest day comes, that there's a great harvest. You see, you get the imagery? You see what we're saying? You say, man, use what I've given to you today 
in such a way that there will be a great harvest one day soon, that when conversion day comes, people will be in the kingdom as a result. People's lives and eternities will be impacted as a result. Use your money for that. And so invest your lives. Invest what God has given to you generously in helping others find Jesus. Invest generously in my kingdom and my mission, God is saying. And then he goes on, the rest of the passage kind of gives us a picture of some of the rewards or some of the harvest that will come if we invest generously for his kingdom. I'll do these pretty quick. But I thought these were fascinating, so we're just going to kind of walk through them. The first thing he says is this. Number one, kind of pop that up. He says, God will bless and provide for you abundantly. God is able, he says, to bless you abundantly in all things at all times, having all that you need so that you can abound in every good work. I mean, I think so often we are afraid to give of our money because we're afraid we won't have enough left over at the end, right? We, we're like, well, I don't have very much, and so we kind of hang on to it tight, and we're like, no, I, don't, I'm, I mean, I, I barely have enough. If I give it out, I won't have enough. And God says, are you kidding me? He says, I am able to bless you in such a way so that you will have all that you need. In fact, it's interesting to see how many times all shows up. He's like, you don't think I'm able to provide for all of your needs at all times, in all things, in all ways? He says, I'm able to provide you with what you need so that you can abound in every good work, so that you can abound in the ministry that I have for you, in the life that I have for you. I'm able to provide so that you can invest generously in the kingdom of God and I can meet your needs. He's basically saying, will you trust me? We sometimes joke about it here and talk about God math and just say, we, th we think that if you have $10 and you give one to the Lord that you have less, right? And of course, our left brain math selves say, well, that's just simple math. But it's not true, right? God, God's saying, I am able to bless you in such a way that you'll have more than enough. Now, can I guarantee you, it's not like a math formula, like if it's not a transaction that you can make God do what you want. He's saying there's blessing and there's provision that come as we invest, as we store up treasures in heaven, as we learn to bring our finances underneath his leadership, as we learn to submit our lives before him and use them for his, there's blessing and there's provision. He takes care of our needs. Generosity does not necessarily come from abundance but it leads us to abundance. It leads us to blessing. Again, this isn't about what God wants from you as though he needs your cash, but it's really about what God wants for you and for his kingdom. He wants to bless you. Second thing, he says, to those who sow generously for his kingdom, he says he'll increase your store of, uh, your, your store of seed. I thought that was an interesting one. He says he will supply your store of seed and increase your store of seed even. It's an interesting way to say, he's kind of reminding us, where, does, where do all of your resources, where do all of your money ultimately come from? God, he says, right? He's the one that supplies. He's the one that provides. He provides the money that we can spend and we can live on. He also is the one responsible for providing uh, what we are able to invest in his kingdom and his mission. He says he'll even increase the money and the resources that we're able to invest in his kingdom. It's, it's sort of how the Macedonian churches were able to give, he says, even beyond their ability to give. God multiplied it. I think so often as Americans, every time we get money, right, every time God provides money, we as our, our, our knee-jerk reaction and our assumption is that money is for 
me, right? We get, we're like, this is great. I got a tax refund. What does that mean? Bigger TV, new car. We got, I mean, we, we start, we start going to those different computer. We're going to pay some bills. We're going to whatever. We, we start thinking if, if I get a raise, what does that mean? Cool. More for us. We can go out to eat more often. We can go on better vacations. We can, that's sort of our assumption is that it, if we get money, it's for, oh, right? It's for me. Of course, we're Americans. This is how we live. I'm not so sure that's what this passage teaches us, though. I'm not so sure that's what it says. Listen to this. Verse 11, it's a butt kicker. He says this. He says, you will be enriched in every way so that. Now, what does so that mean? Is it a purpose statement? Okay, you guys, you got to talk to me here. Are you waking up here? He says, you'll be enriched in every way so that. You got to pay attention. So that what? So that I can, I can live in lavish living, so that I can go on better vacations. Is that what it says? You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be, what's the word? Generous. 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 How often? Generous. On, what's, what's that word? On every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, again, is, is, is money given for our enjoyment? Of course, the Bible teaches that. But again, and, uh, and it's true. I don't think many of us are in danger of not enjoying what God has given us, though. The danger is that we are investing it all in the here and now. We're storing up for ourselves treasures on earth that will not last. And the emphasis of this passage and what Paul and God are praising the Macedonian churches for is that they were storing up treasures in heaven. They're investing their 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 wealth or poverty, whatever, their money, whatever money God's entrusted, they're investing it into the kingdom that's going to last. And he's saying, be like them. Be like them. And the, he's saying, for us, I think the takeaways, I think our knee-jerk reaction ought to be God. Every time God gives us a raise or he gives us increase or he gives us a refund or he gives us whatever, I think that the, the, the passage would say, Maybe our knee-jerk reaction ought to be because we're so focused on Jesus. We're so focused on eternity and, and on the mission of Jesus of helping other people end up with Jesus one day, right? On, when conversion day comes that we're ready. When harvest day comes, we're ready. That our hearts are so focused there that when God provides more, our knee-jerk reaction is say, God, how do you want me to use this? How can I use this? to be generous to the things of God and to the people around me? How can, I, how can you use this to advance your mission? How can you use this to advance your kingdom? And I'll enjoy the leftovers. Would that be a little bit different than how we typically approach money? Is it quiet in here? <laughs> right? Do you see it? I mean, this is, it's a, go back to that last slide, Dad, if you would. I mean, so, so that you'll be enriched, so that you can be generous on every occasion. Man, imagine what God would do with the resources we invest in putting him first and his mission and his kingdom first. Imagine what he would do. All right, better keep going. I'm getting into trouble here. Generosity does not necessarily come from abundance, but leads to abundance. Let's go to the third one. This is crazy. He says, not only, are, not only is he going to supply and increase your store of seed, but he will enlarge or increase the harvest of your righteousness, which is a good churchy, fancy word that you read and you're like, huh, oh, yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have no idea what that means, right? I mean, like, what does that mean to increase, enlarge the harvest of your righteousness? Every time you read the word righteousness in the Bible, I want you to think right relationship, 
Okay, which is, you're kind of like, okay, what does that mean? But he's, right, righteousness means right relationship, right relationship with God first and foremost and with others. In fact, it literally means being in a state uh, where everything is as it should be in our relational worlds. That we are right with God. That we are enjoying and walking in his blessing and his presence and his peace and his goodness. That we're trusting him and walking with him. That we're filled with his love and whatever. And, and we're also in right relationship with other people. And I, I just think that's crazy. That's crazy. Cool. He's like, uh, this makes sense. That as we start prioritizing His kingdom in in our giving, in our finances, in our lives, in our res- with our resources, that uh, that that our relationships with God would grow and be right. That our, and as we grow in generosity, that our relationships with others as well would be as they should be. Generosity does not come from abundance, but leads to. Yep, towards to abundance, right? I want you to think about that. It leads to abundance and blessing and favor and on and on. The fourth one is this, and I like how this passage just keeps coming back to it again and again, that uh, God will use it for his praise. Those who sow generously for his kingdom, God will turn it around and bring glory to himself in it. That's what he does, right? This is what he does over and over in this passage. We're reminded that generosity for God's kingdom overflows with thanksgiving. It overflows with with praise that ends up getting given back to God. It shines a light on God, the God that we imitate. And other people will benefit, and other people even will give praise to God for that generosity. Every time, friends, every time, every time we plant a church, every time we help somebody in need, every time we have a baptism service, every time somebody comes to Christ, every time we help somebody that's in need, we end up praising God as do others for someone else's generosity. Somebody served, somebody gave, somebody loved, somebody shared Jesus with somebody, somebody helped save a marriage, somebody gave of their time, their talents, and their treasure to see God's will done and his mission move forward. And as a result, it rolls over into praise for God. How many times have we had a baptism service and we are just cheering and clapping and high-fiving? We're praying over people. God, we thank you so much for what you do in in our lives. And you know what? That's coming after. It's overflowing because somebody came and served and loved and gave and everything else. And that's how God moved his kingdom forward. It results in praise, in thanks, in glory given back to God. All right, do a little application. We'll be done. Uh, verse uh, 5 tells us, I thought, I thought this is great. It's, it's talking about that church in Macedonia that was so generous. And it said they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then by the will of God, they gave themselves also to us to help, help the church in Jerusalem and that kind of stuff. And I just love the picture of that. That's what we've been asking really you to do over these last few weeks is we, we've been saying, would you take your life, right? Your calendar and your checkbook or wallet or whatever. Would you, take, would you take your time, your talent, your treasure, all this kind of stuff. Would you lay it down before God and give yourself first to the Lord and say, God, how do you want to use my one and only life? How can, how can I invest my life in a way that moves your kingdom forward? And then do what he says. Right? I mean, this isn't like a shakedown. We're not trying to get you to give under compulsion or anything like that. It says each one should give what, what they've decided in their heart to give ahead of time. For God loves a cheerful giver. And so we're saying, would you, would you really work the process? Would you, even this week, would you be surrendering before God and praying, God, how do you want to use my life for your purposes? 
Hopefully if you went to a pie meeting or you got in the mail this week, uh, or if you haven't, there's some on the back table, but the commitment card that we're going to be doing uh, next Sunday night uh, has a list, and it's got the stuff on there that we're asking you to pray through. And the first one was, uh, who, right? It answers the who question. Who is God calling you to reach out to? I mean, there's a mission that Jesus has given to us. Who is it that, that he, is on your list that you're going to be praying for over the next 18 months, that you're going to be inviting, that you're going to uh, be serving and loving and moving towards, and, and the Lord willing, uh, that, that you be able to share Jesus with them and see, be there when they get baptized and when they go public with their faith. Who is it that God's put in your sphere? There's 250,000 people around us. There's more. Every Christ follower ought to have four or six or eight or ten people that we have actually written down. And I want you to actually do that. I don't need their names. You can put their initials if you want in the cards. But I want you to know who it is, right? Otherwise, it's easy for us to go through life and not engage in the mission. And we have to know who, right? Who are we praying for? Who can we invite? Who are we reaching out to? So the first question is who? We want you to take that seriously. I want every one of us uh, to, 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 to do that, to identify four, six, eight people that we'll be praying for and reaching out to over the next 18 months. Last week we talked about um, kind of the, uh, you know, the how, how is God asking, uh, how does God want you to use your talents and your gifts and your abilities to serve and to help God's kingdom move forward? God, how, God, how do you want to use my life? How do you want to use my the, the opportunities you give me, the, the, the giftings and the abilities and the, the opportunities you give me to help your kingdom move forward. Today, uh, of course, the challenge has to do with finances. And I know this one's hard for us because, again, it is tied to our heart. But that's, we're, we're just saying as a church, would you this week just kind of open up your hands and say, God, how do you want to use my finances? How can I invest this temporary stuff in ways that will last forever? How can I sow to eternity? How can I store up treasure in heaven? As a church, I mean, one of, one of the goals we have for the campaign, this is one of many, is that we would see uh, God provide an extra $75,000 above and beyond our normal giving uh, to help move the mission of Jesus forward in our area, to help us plant another church, to help us reach more and more of the 250000 and is that going to be sacrificial? Uh, is that the, that's the way it's going to happen, right? It's going to be sacrificial for all of us. But we're saying, would you, would you be willing to pray through that and then do, and ask God and then do what he, asks, what he tells you to do kind of thing? It's the way the kingdom of God always moves forward, right? Like we, were talk, we talked about earlier, that's the way the kingdom moves forward is God's people prioritize his kingdom prioritize his mission and, and say, God, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm all yours. I'm all in. And then uh, what we're asking of you then is to pray through those things, make the decisions, and then come, come next Sunday night. If you are a part of Ignite, I'll reiterate what Tina said, we want you there, right? If, you can, if there's any way you can be there, it's not a guilt trip, but we'd love for you to be there. If, even if you're like, I don't know what I can really do or can do, come anyway. Come be a part of this significant moment in the life of the church, but pray through these decisions, write them down or, or whatever, and then come ready to make those pledges to God, and then we will live those things out over the next 18 months. I think it's going to be really cool. Uh, if for some reason you can't be there, but you're like, Ignite's still my church, I'd still encourage you to fill those things out. Like I said, there's some on the back table, a little commitment card kind of thing. Fill it out if you want this week as you pray through it. Text a picture to me. You can respond. Uh, drop it by the office sometime this week or whatever, and we'll include that in our final number. It'll be kind of a, a cool moment. So we'd encourage you to be a part. But, but really, I just think it's going to be cool as we prioritize God's kingdom. 
with our time, our talent, our treasure, the kingdom will move forward. People will meet Jesus. It'll overflow into thanks and praise and glory to God. Lives and marriages and eternities will be impacted. It will be worth it. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for uh, that you use us. We thank you for the ways you provide, the ways you have brought us into your kingdom, the ways you have modeled through Jesus how to live. The fact that you, um, though you were rich, you became poor for us so that we could become rich with Jesus. I pray that you'd send us out on mission today, God, to live financially, yes, but with our lives, all of who we are, all of what you entrusted to us, that we would put it to, to full work to see your kingdom come and your will be done, to see more and more people come to know Jesus. Pray that you would do abundantly more than all we could ask or imagine. And that all of it would just roll over into amazing praise and glory and worship towards you. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.